begin with prayer. Father, I thank you that you want to reveal your character of other-centered love and how far you will go not only to forgive us, to heal us and set us free, but to redeem us and restore us, destroying the lies of the enemy about the judgment so that we can receive your grace and respond to you daily. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to connect our hearts to your heart of love. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be talking about the judgment and how it can be the most positive, powerful message that we have to share when Christ is in the center. Whoops, that's not clicking. It was working this morning. This way. Uh, it worked perfectly this morning. Oh, there it is. Is it doing it now? Okay. Or another way of saying it is how to recover from post-traumatic judgment disorder. Because a lot of people, when we talk about the judgment, they get more fear and anxiety than peace. And if I'm thinking about my name coming up in the judgment, and I have fear because they say, well, are all my sins going to come up in the judgment? If they do, your name's in the wrong book of life. It's not in the book of life. It's in the wrong book. But they think God's going to somehow expose all their sins in the judgment, which goes against our sins being covered. He remembers them no more. They're in the past. But we have this picture of God. So what we want to do is look at it from a different perspective. And I may just need to have you click it because it's not cooperating. Can somebody just click it up there and I'll tell them to click it? Can somebody run up there? <clears throat> Technology is an invitation to sanctification. And some days I find I'm more sanctified than others. I'm more patient with it than others. But it, it makes us to, you know, we can't always trust it. This was working fine this morning. But I'll just have people click it because... Uh, God's in the messiness and brokenness of life. So if somebody w somebody's on their way up right now. Anyway, while somebody is going up there, hopefully somebody does, uh, when we talk about the judgment, we think more about how God's going to hold our past against that, which is opposite righteousness by faith, opposite receiving the finished work of God. And so we talked about earlier today how we go through experiences negative experiences where we learn that we uh, are alone, abandoned, rejected. So what Jesus does is he goes through negative experiences and he's tempted with the exact same thoughts we are. He's made like us in every way, tempted like us in all points, no exceptions. Now again, being tempted with our thoughts is not the same as giving into our thoughts. He never gave into our thoughts at any level, so we never had our negative feelings and negative behaviors. Uh, I, I covered that this morning, so I'm not going to, uh, go, uh, that's just a quick review. But we'll go to the next slide. Uh, Sherry came to me, and she was overwhelmed with shame, and she knew why, but it was so overwhelming, she could not tell me. It was too painful for her. She knew why. And so I could take a couple of options. I could say, you trust me, you came to me, 
Uh, so obviously, trust me, it's somewhere. I'm not going to judge you. But then I'm getting her to do what she said she didn't want to do. And uh, I didn't want to do that. I want her to make her own choice, to go into the throne room of grace. Or I said, you know, what we could do is we could just stop. I can have a prayer. And then when you're ready to tell me, you can come back. But that means you're carrying the shame with you. But I said, there's one other option we could do, and we'll click the slide, where we can identify with Christ, struggling to surrender his will to his Father's will in Gethsemane when he's tempted to not go where God's calling him to go. Now, he chose to go there, so we can put in a prayer, dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you were tempted to not go where you wanted to go. You chose to surrender to your Father in your life and death battle, and I'm leading Sherry through this prayer so that I can receive your spirit of surrender, not hers, your spirit of surrender to take the next step. And I said, so we have those options. You can leave and come back later and carry the shame, or we can pray now. She chose to pray and identify with Christ. And it took about three times for me to get the whole story out. Is that okay if I pray three times for her to get to the surrender? Because how many times did Jesus pray? Three. The magic number is not three, but it took about three times because she was so overwhelmed by it. So uh, if you want to click the next slide. Um, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him and endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father of God. So guess what? Has Jesus already taken her overwhelming shame? Yeah. 2,000 years later, we're not going to try and tell her to get rid of her shame. We're going to say Jesus took it 2,000 years ago. We want you to receive that freedom because he already sat down at the Father's right hand. It's already done. He said, bring on all the shame so I can heal people and set them free. We'll click to the next slide. Okay. Now, when I do this presentation, some people worry that this is cheap grace, and then if people hear this message, they will run out and sin. Now, if you hear a message on the cross and your response is, now I can do what I want in the flesh, you have missed the cross. But whenever I share this, uh, I grew up Catholic and we had eight kids, good Catholic family, lots of kids, and we were all named after saints. I was named after St. Paul, so he's my namesake. So Paul wrote Romans, and let's look at what does Paul say when he's accused of teaching cheap grace. Let's just take, so before we get into the key parts, let's look at that. It says, someone might argue if my lie or falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases glory, why am I still con condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported of saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. So what, what he's saying is, people are taking my words and saying, God's so good, I can go out and do whatever I want. Let God forgive me. I'm doing God a favor to show how forgiving he is. What's Paul's response to that? It's on the screen, it's underlined, the words are the largest on the screen, so you can't miss it. When I ask people in their training, they do everything but read the words on the screen because we have not been trained to think for ourselves in context. Brian just gave us, you know, a message on the faith of Jesus, and he's breaking down scripture in context, so you know what it means, and it's consistent with the word. So their condemnation is just. Does that sound like Paul's for cheap grace or against cheap grace? He's against it. Let's go to the next verse. The next slide. Okay, let's go to Romans 6, and he says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's Paul's attitude towards this? God forbid. So is Paul for cheap grace that leads us to sin? No, he's against it. Grace grows us in God's truth and leads us out of sin into freedom. 
So, just want you to be, know that, guess what? This is not a cheap grace message. If you hear a message of the cross and the judgment that leads God to heal you and set you free, he will not send you back into sin. But so many people are afraid of grace that they're worried. Someday I'm going to write a book, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Philip Yancey, he wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? I want to write a book, What's So Scary About Grace? Why are we so afraid of it? People are actually scared of God's grace. You know why? Because they're living white-knuckle Christianity, and they think if they accept grace, they're keeping their flesh down, their own strength, so they think if they accept God's love, what's going to happen is the flesh is going to rise up. The opposite happens. If you surrender to God and receive the life of Christ and his faith, will Jesus living in you lead you into sin or out of sin? He's going to lead you out of sin. And you're going to enjoy freedom. Not, you're not going to be able to enjoy sin. But we have this, so I just wanted to look at this because we're going to be in Romans 4 and Romans 3 and 6 just happened to book it. So we'll go to the next slide. Now when you see this police car behind you and he follows you for six blocks and your license is up, your tags are up, your insurance is up, heck, can we still feel nervous? And all of a sudden I think, you know, I think I have a divine appointment down this side street, you know? Why? Because we're thinking, is he going to find something wrong with me? Is he going to give me a ticket? And this, is, this one picture I think summarizes why we have post-traumatic judgment disorder. We're pretty sure that the judgment means God's going to bring all my sins up and show it to the universe. I have people ask me that all the time. Is all my junk coming up in the judgment? Not if your name's in the book of life. Because the only thing in the book of life is Jesus' blood covering our sins. And I don't think Jesus is going to remove his life record over ours. So they ask that. So we want to look at this and then click to the next slide. Uh, Carl Menninger was a famous psychiatrist. How much damage does our inability to receive God's forgiveness do to us? He says 75% of people could walk out of a psychiatric ward the next day if they knew their sins were forgiven. So he's a professional. He's a doctor. He's taken, he's in psychiatry. He's looking on the psych ward and he's saying, what's the problem with seven, not 100%, there are chemical imbalances, uh, and some people need medication, but he's looking at them going, 75% of these people are haunted by sins in the past, and they can't experience forgiveness. Now, if the church could step into this gap, do you understand what kind of healing and freedom we could offer to them? It's amazing, because brokenness is inside of us. Brokenness is all around us. Jesus said in Luke 14, I came to heal. My gospel heals the brokenhearted and sets the captives free, which means brokenness is our greatest evangelistic opportunity, if we know how to apply it. So we'll go to the next slide. Now, why do we carry guilt and shame after we've confessed our sins, uh, after we have stopped even doing the sins? We'll click, go to the next one. It's because we can even stop doing the behaviors, but we have confessed our fruit, like I talked about earlier today. Please forgive me for my anger, and I'll never do it again. Keep me from overeating. Keep me from looking at pornography, Lord. I'll never do it again. We're negotiating with God. We're hoping he comes through. And we're only dealing with the fruit. So we'll click again. We don't know about the negative messages from the father of lies that's been whispered in first-person language. I'm undeserving. I'm powerless. I can't be forgiven. I'm unwanted. We don't know about those. We're just focusing on the surface, the symptoms. If you have cancer, do you want your doctor to deal with the symptoms or the source? 
You want them to get a pill, give them aspirin. Isn't that what you want? No. You know what you want? You want them to take out that tumor, root and fruit. You want to take, let their, the symptoms lead you to that tumor and then get rid of the tumor, right? That's what we want. But you know what we do often in our prayer life? We only bring the symptoms. We don't bring the source. So as long as that happens, the devil's having a field day deceiving us where we're doing what we should with our symptoms but not dealing with the source. We'll go to the next slide. So here's what the devil does. Step one, he sets us up to be hurt. If you click it. Okay. He whispers lies in my heart before and after I sin. Then he reminds me of my past, whispering his negative thoughts about myself, and those thoughts grow into negative feelings. We know that from science. So we'll click again. And then the next step is, these negative thoughts become my identity. I know better than my addictions. And some, you know, programs of recovery will say, I'm Paul, I'm an alcoholic. The problem with that is there's a lot of good things in recovery movements. The problem is I've just identified myself as my addiction. No, you know what the Bible identifies me as? A son or daughter of God. So some Christian recoveries will say, groups will start by saying, hi, I'm a grateful believer learning how to overcome. So they're not minimizing the alcohol, anger, work, drugs, whatever, but they're beginning with, I am a grateful believer learning how to overcome. Language makes a difference. And so what I want to talk about today is whether we're going to get the fullness of forgiveness or partial. I'm not saying we don't get any forgiveness. I'm saying we get some, but I'd like to have the kind of forgiveness when the devil reminds me of my past, it bounces into the supernatural peace of God. I can't stop the devil from attacking me, but the devil can't stop God from putting his peace in my heart. Believe me to be more dependent on God. So I believe we've gotten the uh, he, he wants to give us the fullness of forgiveness. So we can receive messages, I'm bad, I'm no good, I can't be forgiven. Now, if I have a belief system in my heart, I can't be forgiven, I've sinned too many times, and God's word says I'm forgiven, which is going to win out, the truth of God's word or the belief in my heart? Which went out for the disciples who walked with Jesus for over three years? The lies in their heart. Until the lies were exposed at the cross, they acted according to their beliefs in their heart, which is consistent with God's word, as I think in my heart, so am I. So, uh, click again. And if we look at Romans 7, we don't have time, but there's over 35 references in Paul's struggle, personal preferences, I, me, my. See, Paul's focusing on himself. When he gets to the end of the chapter, switches to focus on Jesus Christ, then he moves into Romans 8, there's no condemnation. So let's go to the next slide. So we have to deal with the thoughts. And then when I have those negative thoughts, and I see you at church, I wear a mask. I don't tell you I'm struggling with my marriage or with a child. I don't tell you I'm struggling with finances or an addiction. I tell you what I think you want to hear so there's no safety for me to come to the play at God's house and actually get some healing and freedom from others who will walk with me. Um, let's click again. So, as we go into this, there's two lies, two key lies. First one is don't go there. Don't deal with your negative thoughts. The second one is don't stay there. So once you get some healing after one or two prayer times, don't be a disciple who walks with Jesus for days, weeks, and months like the disciples did. Don't stay there. Settle for your instant feel-good. As soon as you feel like a 50-pound burden is lifted, stop, don't go there. And number two is much more devious than one because then they come back six months later and they go, you know, uh, it doesn't really work. And I said, I think you left when I was asking to keep praying with you. So if I feel really, really good, you know what the devil says in first-person language? I'm done. I don't need any more. 
But Jesus talked about daily bread. Paul, my namesake, talked about die daily. So I'm going to go with what Jesus and Paul say, not how I feel, not what the devil says to lie to me. Um, and again, we talked about earlier today, Jesus being born to an unwed mother, being a refugee in Egypt, being unsafe, his life being threatened, a cloud over him. This is what it means for Jesus to take on humanity. And in the 1888 message, there's a strong, nonstop emphasis on the Jesus taking on humanity like us. He has to walk in my shoes. He has to go through what I've gone through. He has to be tested like me and more than me because I only have human strength. He actually was tested more because he had divine power. He could have used. Could he have turned stone into bread? Yeah, if the devil tempts me to turn this podium into cheesecake, it's not going to, I'm, I'm going to go, that's crazy because I can't do it. Jesus can. He was tempted. He could have come down from the cross when they tempted him. So he's alone, abandoned, betrayed, abused, tempted to numb his pain on the cross. Now he can identify with every addict, not by giving into it, by suffering, being tempted, and overcoming it. Okay? And then he cries out, why God? And so for the next few minutes, as we look at this slide, uh, you can click it. Um, some people say that if you make people think they're thinking, they'll love you, but if you really make them think, they'll hate you. So I tell people with this one, if for the next 15 minutes you hate me, I get it. I'm okay with it. I'm secure with Jesus. Because I want people to think. And we're going to look at some scriptures that appear to contradict each other, but they don't. Uh, if this was a regular training and, and not a more general conference, I wouldn't give that away. I'd have you looking at it and digging in yourself, and then you remember three times longer. But we have to adapt to our, our uh, COVID and, you know, what we're doing. But let's go to the next slide. Okay. Your confidence in God's word might dip for a few minutes if you want to click twice, uh, but it's going to come up at the end. Okay, so I'm letting you know you might begin to have a few doubts with the father of lies, but the ending is going to be when you study God's word in context, your confidence goes way, way up. And you begin to believe the Holy Spirit can speak to you through the word if you stay in context. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. Uh, it's okay to disagree because I have people disagree with me all the time. I just tell them wherever I am in the world, I just want one thing. I want you to show me from context where I'm wrong and I'll raise the white flag. Is that okay? Just show me from context. And so people give me all the objections and I say, I understand why you're saying what you're saying. And I've heard this a hundred times. I just want you to show me what you're telling me from scripture. And you know what they can't do? They can't show me from scripture. Because what they've got is a culturally conditioned attitude they've been raised with about stories in the Bible and when you ask them to stay in context, they're stuck, and they default, like, and, and I'm not blaming them because I do it, the disciples do it. They default to Jesus being the militant Messiah, right? So they walked with God for, for three and a half years and missed the main message. So I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying if I'm going to agree that I'm wrong, I want you to show me from the text itself that I'm wrong. And if you can, I'll raise the white flag. Be warned, though, I've heard most of what people are going to say, and I'm a broken record, show me from Scripture. Show me from this verse, okay? And for this particular one, I put in some more slides to kind of break it down. So let's look at Abraham's life. We know Abraham was a pretty good guy. Uh, he followed God by faith at faith 75. He makes altars to God everywhere he goes. He allows Lot to choose which piece of the land. That's like somebody winning a $200 million lotto and saying to your nephew, you take what part of the lotto money you want and I'll take the rest. Okay. 
Um, he's trusting God. He rescues Lot from four kings who had defeated five kings. And he does it with 318 men. And even if these were trained warriors, do 318 men defeat four kings who are battle-tested and defeated five kings? No. Is Abraham trusting in the supernatural power of God to get this victory? Yeah. And then he comes back with Melchizedek. Does he want any credit for it or any spoils? No. Okay? And then he puts Isaac on the altar. So we look at this and we say, what a man of faith. And we have to acknowledge these are acts of faith trusting God. And God said to him in Genesis 15, 6, you believe, therefore you're credited, you're given, you're covered in righteousness. So the Jews look at him and they say, he earned righteousness by what he did. They put a human twist on it like we often do with truths in God's word. So, but that's not all of Abraham's story. He has Sarah lie to Pharaoh the first time, and he say, he's going to save his life by having his wife become a concubine of Pharaoh. Join the harem. Would you call that faith or lack of faith? Wives, do you want Abraham to show up next week and do a seminar on how to be a good husband, good house band? Ellen White says, God does not flatter his people in the Bible, so when we put them on pedestals, that's on us, not on God. Okay? Uh, he calls El Eliezer his heir. He says, I guess I'm not going to have a son. God says, you, you can't count the number of your children. And he says, I guess Eliezer is going to be the heir. That's not belief. It's unbelief. Uh, he, sleep, he sleeps with Hagar. Here's a 75-year-old, 80-year-old guy sleeping with Hagar, 85 probably, uh, sleeping with a teenage girl who's a sex slave. You understand, what would we call him today? We don't like that, but that... that stories in the Bible to teach us something, okay? And, uh, and then she gets pregnant, and then that, dis that action, that decision that he and Sarah made only starts a 4,000-year-old war that's tearing the world apart. This is your father of the faithful, okay? I hope you're thinking that God's the hero of his story and not Abraham. We make Abraham the hero of the story, and then we compare ourselves to Abraham's good deeds, and we come out short. Who'd want me to compare my bad deeds, my lack of faith, with Abraham's high points? Who might want to do that? So I beat myself up. Maybe Satan, the father of lies? So, and then he wants Ishmael to be his heir. You know, he laughs. He says, I'm 100, she's 90. God, you're a good comedian. Can Ishmael be the heir? That is not belief. And many people look at this verse and say he believed. No, he didn't. It's very clear from the context he doesn't believe. Don't make Abraham better than he is. Don't make him worse, but don't make him better because you miss out on God's grace and righteousness. And then he has Sarah lie to King Bimelech after God promised him the son. It's not that far after, okay? And then he tells the king, king says, why'd you do this? And he says, well, my wife's beautiful and she's 90, so uh, I'm going to say that she, she's aged gracefully, but is she going to compete with the 20-year-olds on Sports Illustrated? No. But see, Abraham believes she's beautiful, and because she's beautiful, and, and again, let's say she's aging gracefully, his belief system, he says, is, she's beautiful, you'll kill me to get my wife. Now, he's already, God's already rescued him once out of Egypt. Has God shown he can take care of his son, Abraham? Yeah. So, of course, he never makes this mistake again because God did a miracle once, right? We'd like the story to read that way. It doesn't because I have to depend on God daily. No matter how good he is to me today, Tomorrow, I have to get up and receive his grace and truth again. It's daily. And any 
uh, biblical truth that doesn't lead me into greater and greater dependence on God on a daily basis is leading me in the wrong direction. So, uh, and he does. So this is after. In fact, it says in the story, um, there it says that none of the concubines in the king's house were getting uh, pregnant. Which means she was there long enough for them to notice none of, nobody's getting pregnant. Little detail, but it tells you she's been there a while. This wasn't a day, it wasn't a week. Um, and, and the king, when God shows up and says, you touch her, I'll kill you, uh, and your household, he says, I haven't touched her. He goes, I'm not giving you any credit for that. I kept you from her. This isn't Abraham. It's not Sarah doing it. It's God. Now, is this who we want to be the father of our faithful? People say, you're beating up on Abraham. I'm asking you a simple question. Have I gone beyond what Scripture says? No. I had one person get upset and leave. They said, you're being mean to Abraham. You know why we won't look at Abraham's brokenness? Not looking at ours. If you don't let God speak into your brokenness, you're not going to want to see that David took Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered. You'll know the story, but you will emphasize the high points. And it's a demonic deception to not read Scripture the way it was meant to be read so that we can learn from them the importance of daily dependence and trusting in his righteousness, his love, not our own. So, I want to look at this. Um, we're going to pair Romans 4 with the Old Testament story, and we're going to do something simple. If it's what Romans 4 says about uh, Abraham, when you compare it to the Old Testament story, we're going to check true. But it has to be 100% true. If it's false, if it's not 100% true, we're going to check false. It's a true and false answer. Now, people like to go lots of different ways. For the lack of time, I'm going to keep it true-false even though there are a lot of powerful theological discussions here. And just because we tend to get early Alzheimer's and turn Abraham into more than who he was, I just happen to have in big print where Abraham's laughing in unbelief. And we're going to keep coming back to this as a critical part of the Romans 4 study. So we'll go to the next slide. We'll just click to the next slide. And we're going to do this for... Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, we'll click on that. Click on 21 and 22. So we're going to look at 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. So we'll go to the next slide. Now, just in case we forget quickly, Abraham was flawed like you and me. And by the way, if you understand that Abraham had highs and lows, and highs and lows, and God met him at his lowest lows, and grew him to put Isaac on the altar... What does that tell you about God working with your highs and lows? If you only look at Abraham's highs and your lows, does it give you hope or steal your hope? See, if we take the whole story the way God had it written, it actually gives me more hope. I'm not saying go out and start a 4,000-year war. That's cheap grace that Paul's writing against and condemns. What I'm saying is, if God gives us Abraham's human record, maybe I should come before God and not try to be more than who I am, but be who I am one day at a time, okay? But just in case we get Alzheimer's, I'm putting his Old Testament flaws there. Now, here's what it says in Romans 4.18. In hope he believed against hope. In other words, he always hoped that he should become the father of the faithful. So let's click and let's ask a question. When we look at this, uh, the first thing we have to ask, here's his Old Testament story. He lies about Sarah two times, wants Ishmael to be the heir, Starts that minor little 4,000-year-old war that's tearing apart the world today. Uh, and then he's 100, she's 90. Now it says, hope against hope, father of many nations. 
so shall your offspring be. Now, a lot of people, because this is this verse after verse, talks about Abraham having faith, perfect faith, really. It, Paul's actually using words that allows no exceptions. As we go through it, you'll see. Um, they want to think of a moment in faith where he didn't doubt. And so we end up with Isaac on the altar. But when you look at the language of the verse, you stay in the context of verse 18, is this Isaac on the altar or Isaac being born? He's the father of many nations, and it's talking about his offspring. Is this Isaac being born or Isaac on the altar? It's Isaac being born. Okay. So then if we have to ask a simple question. Is what Paul's saying 100% accurate with his Old Testament record? When he laughed in unbelief at Isaac being born. And after getting this promise in Genesis 17, and after getting this promise in Genesis 18, he tells his wife to sleep with Abimelech. No, so we have to check false. So let's go to the next one. Makes us a little nervous, okay? But we're going to study this in context and go to the next slide. Let's click through that one. Again, we have Abraham laughing in unbelief, okay? He laughs in his heart. God's always after the heart. It was heart work with Christ. So let's look to the next slide, okay? Let's put it here. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead. He's 100 years old in the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So we'll click again. Now, some people say, well, maybe this is some of his other sons by his second wife after Sarah, after she dies, and concubines. So let's click the slide and see. The age is he's 100 years old, and whose womb is it? Sarah's womb. So we want to go to Genesis 25 because it doesn't fit with the story. I get it. Now let's bring in Genesis 17 again. 17:17. Uh, 17, 17. He's 100 years old. He laughs in his heart, and she's 90. So let's go to the next slide and see what happens. Now we know she, he's 100. She's 90. How old is he in Romans 4:19? He's 100 years old. Let's click that. He's 100 years old, and Sarah's 90. Can we agree that Paul is talking about the same story in Genesis 17, 17, when they're the exact same age? It's impossible for this to be other sons from the second wife and concubines because she lived many more years after Isaac was born. So it's impossible for it. I know we want to go there. And if we had time in a discussion group, it's fun to let it come up. In fact, in my outline, I actually give them the verses to go to in Genesis 25 and Genesis other places, and Hebrews, and James, because I know the verses they're going to bring me, but it doesn't fit. So, whose womb is it? It's Sarah's womb, right? And then let's click again. This can, can this, is this Abe's other sons by second wife or his concubines? Click again. No. So, is what Paul writing consistent with the Old Testament record? Absolutely not. This is not his new sons. Did he, is this 100% faithful that Abraham believed God would give him a son. It says he did not weaken. Did, if you look at the left-hand column, would you call telling your wife not once but twice, having sex with another man to save your life, the second time within uh, months after God's showing up, we don't have time to do the math, but it had to be within three months. Why? It takes nine months to have a baby, and God said you're, you're going to happen within a year. So take three months from nine. I'm allergic to math. That's why I became a pastor, but I can figure this out. Twelve from nine is three. Now, he had to have time for the women to be in there with a month and figure out nobody's getting pregnant, so that's four to six weeks. So at max, Abraham lied again about his wife being a sister within six weeks. That's the best timeline you can give this guy. And God has shown up twice. 
Many people say, if God showed up and talked to me, I would never doubt again. I would like that in my own life. And so would you. It's just not consistent with reality in the Old Testament or New Testament. Zach, Zachariah, what's Zacharias? What's he doing? He's standing there in the altar in the holy place. He's serving. An angel shows up and he says, you're going to have a son. You want a son? I've heard your prayers. So, of course, it's an angel and it's supernatural and it's in the holy place. So, of course, he believes, right? Oh, he doesn't believe. So, is, is this true that Abraham never weakened in his belief that he would have a son when Sarah's womb is dead? No, it's not, so we have to check false again. And now people start getting nervous. We can click that. Because they go, if this isn't true and this isn't true, what else isn't true in the Bible? Can I trust it? So we can do one, two things. We can give up the Bible, which I don't want to do because I've invested my life in it, or we can continue reading and studying in context. And if the answer is in context, your faith goes up. So let's keep going. We'll check false on that. The next click, and then we'll go to the next slide. Okay, we'll go to the next slide. So now Paul has written two things in a row that are blatantly false, not even close to what the Old Testament says. So either Paul had Alzheimer's, we have to educate him when he gets to heaven, or God's got a message for us and he wants us to put on our thinking cap. You know, Peter said, Paul said hard things. There's hard things to understand in the Old Testament and Jesus' words and Paul's words and Peter's words. So they're an invitation. So I just want to, as we go into these next verses, I want to be clear, there's no Old Testament promise from God to Abraham that if he puts his son on the altar, he's going to raise him from the dead. Now, where we get confused is that Abraham says, the record in Hebrews 11 says, he believed God would raise him. So that is an act of faith. Would we all agree? Yes. But that Abraham's faith is different. There is no promise in the Old Testament to Abraham that if he obeys God, he's getting his son back. Now, he was wise. He didn't tell his wife he was going to sacrifice his son. Honey, remember the son of promise? I'm taking him up in the mountain. I'm going to slit his throat, and I'm going to come back, and God told me to. He was very wise not to tell his wife, because I have a hunch the story might have ended up differently. Okay, but there is no Old Testament promise that he would be raised from the dead. Abraham trusts God, but the reason it's by faith is because he had no evidence to do it. So, what does he say? He had no unbelief, meaning never. Paul's using words every time that boxes us in to no, no faith, no lack of faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strength and faith as he gave glory to God. And one at a time, but Romans 4 does us a favor, because in earlier verses, in the same chapter, it keeps talking about the promise, and the promise is all about Isaac's being born. So, if you stay in the context, you cannot go to... God promised Abraham. It's not in the Old Testament, and it's not in Romans 4. So it creates a conundrum, and then we get to think and develop faith. I, I was in South, Af I mean, South America doing this, and a lady was getting very frustrated because she hadn't learned to think. She'd been spoon-fed all her life, and she's just saying, this is so hard, this is so hard, I don't like this, and I'm breaking them into groups, having them wrestle with it. And finally, when she got done, she was so glad because she actually developed new neurological pathways. So I tell them, you know, it's going to be painful to think, but you can thank me later. Your brain's growing younger. I'm going to help you have a younger brain. So let's go. Now that we know that he had no unbelief, uh, and uh, is this Isaac on the altar or Isaac being born? It's Isaac being born. Because there is no promise from Genesis to Revelation, including Romans 4, that he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's what God believed. I mean, Abraham believed. So now, that's false too, 
So now we've got verse 18, 19, and 20 three times in a row, and people start getting stressed and tense because now they have to think and they're frustrated. So let's go to verse 21. Let's see if verse 21 helps, okay? Uh, now it says he's fully persuaded, or some versions say fully convinced, that God has the power to do what he promises. Again, the promise is not about Isaac being raised from the dead. The promise is always about the son being born. It's part of the covenant, isn't it? It's part of the covenant relationship that God has with Abraham. So again, let's go here, fully convinced. So is this Isaac on the altar or Isaac being born? It's Isaac being born. So what Paul just said is false again. So now we have verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21, and they're all false. How's your faith? Okay, let's go to the next verse. Maybe 22 will help. This is why his faith was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. So this record that's false, 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 and false again is why he's given the gift of righteousness. So this becomes a puzzle, and you get to be an adventurer, a detective. So let's go, let's keep going. This record that is not true, and every verse, 18, 19, 20, and 21, is based on his Old Testament history. It's not true. That's why Paul says Abraham is credited with righteousness. He's given righteousness. Okay? So let's go to the next verse and see what happens. So, so far, everything Paul said is false, except for maybe uh, verse 22, talking about righteousness. So let's go to the next uh, slide. So it says Abraham always hoped, always had faith, always believed, fully convinced, and it's all about Isaac being born, and that's true. At least not with his Old Testament history. Okay. So, where could we begin looking for God's word for help to reconcile verse after verse that appears to, seems to contradict itself, but it does not. Okay, it does not. Uh, we could click, we could go to Genesis uh, 22 or 25, we could go to Hebrews 11, James 2, but guess what? What if the answer is in Romans 4? If the answer to this puzzle is in Romans 4, what would happen to your critical thinking skills and your faith? It would go way up. Guess what? We don't have to go anywhere else. Uh, when I ask this question, people go everywhere else but Romans 4 because they're caught in a thought process, where can I justify Abraham having faith? I'm going to suggest our job is not to justify him having faith. Our job is look at the Old Testament record, look at Romans 4, and ask God how he resolves it. Um, so let's go to the next slide. Let's go to the verse, let's go to the next slide we're going to look at four. Let's go click it. Not, the very next verse, 23, says it's this record that is not true, not true, not true, is not for Abraham alone. Oh, so other people get this record that's not true, not true, and not true? That are given a record of always believing, never not believing, growing stronger, never wavering in faith, and growing, you can't say that about Abraham. You can't say that God says, shows up in Genesis 17 and 18, reaffirms the gift of a son in his old age, past the age where he or his wife can have kids, and then he sells his wife out a second time. You can't get faith out of that. We want to, but you can't. And Paul is using language that does not allow us to do that. So, uh, if it's not Abraham's record, and it's not, uh, go back to that other one, because it says those are key verses. It's not for Abraham alone, but also for us. Click again, for also for us. Now, there's a qualifier to who the us are. It's not for everybody. 
It's not for everybody. Uh, it is for everybody, but it's only those who receive it. Okay, let's go to the next one. It's not Abraham's record. I don't have a perfect record of faith, hope, and trust. You don't have one. So the question is, if it's not Abraham's record, and it's not your record or my record, whose record is it? And people want to shout out Jesus. And that's true. But what if, the an- what if we can get the answer out of Romans 4 so you don't just make a wild guess, and if you're right, you don't know how to teach it from the Word? It's kind of like that children's story where the, the lady says, uh, I'm thinking of an animal. It's gray. It has a tail. It stores nuts for the winter. And the kid says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Okay? God doesn't want me to give the answers I think it is. I want you to know whose story this is from Romans 4. Not guessing, because if you guess right, but you can't teach it from the Word, what good is that? That's just an opinion. And even if it's the right opinion, you have no biblical foundation to teach it. I want you to have a biblical foundation. So let's go to the next slide. Um, Jesus was delivered to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. His death is needed. His resurrection is needed. So who gets this record? Those who believe that God took his son, put him on the cross to take all my suffering, all my sin to death on the cross, raise him again to justify me. I'm right with him. That's who gets it. So if you reject it, you don't get this record. This record of perfect faith, hope, and trust, always believing, never not believing, being fully convinced, only goes to those who trust God with their sins, wounds, and life. But when you do, you get his record. Now, we've heard the statement, justification is just as if I never sinned. The problem with that is, uh, who's the center of that, just as if I never sinned? I am. And it's about whether I'm sinning. I'd like to give you another one. Just as if Jesus lived my life, because he actually lived my life. This is the faith of Jesus. Am I willing to take my sins, wounds, and lies to Jesus and say, I'm going to trust you with everything. You search my heart. You reveal my negative thoughts in any sinful way in me to lead me in the everlasting way. This is faith. This is trusting God. It's not faith in faith. I thank Brian for his presentation afterwards because sometimes people go, oh, if I just have enough faith and belief, I won't sin. No, that's faith in faith. That's presumption. This is receiving the faith of Jesus that he developed during his trials. So this is just as if Jesus lived my life, because actually, he did leave my life. So when your name comes up in the judgment, and you've accepted Jesus, and you've trusted him, will your sins be there, or will Jesus' record of perfect faith and hope be there? If it's in the book of life, there's only one thing that can be there. Jesus' perfect record of faith, hope, and trust. So Romans 4 says, this isn't for Abraham alone. That tells us this isn't Abraham's record. There's many people with doctrines and theology that put this Abraham on the altar. Many, most commentaries say this is Abraham on the altar. But if you keep reading verse by verse, it doesn't match up with that story. And it's not for Abraham alone. You can't, this is not Abraham's story alone. Then it goes, it's yours and mine. So I'm going to suggest there's only one life that was ever lived with a Romans 4 record of faith, hope, and trust in God. It wasn't me. It wasn't you. It wasn't Abraham. Abraham is not the hero of his story. I'm not the hero of my story. You're not the hero of your story. You don't come and bring your good works to God. It's part of your story. 
you receive the story of Jesus. And here's the good news. Earlier today I said, if you identify with Christ, he will heal you free and set you free. But you know what the hidden half of the judgment is? If you do that, according to Desire of Ages, if you identify with Christ, he will identify with you so closely that his thoughts become your thoughts. And his life becomes your own. So do you want to take your life record into the judgment? Or do you want to take Christ's record into the judgment? I'm going to suggest that Jesus' life record is the center of the great controversy in the judgment. And why we have fear about the judgment is we put ourselves in the center. We are in the judgment secondarily as to whether or not I have received Christ's life and let him live in me and through me or whether I have rejected it. Did I trust in the Savior's works or self-works? But I am secondary to the judgment. And if I put myself in the center of the judgment and my work, should I shake in my boots? Absolutely, because I have no righteous works to give him. So the devil says, think about the judgment, Paul. Think about the judgment and what you're bringing. I better, the only way to get hope is to bring his life record over my record. And by the way, it's not an accounting trick. It's actually evidence that I've trusted God, I've received the faith of Jesus, his hope, faith, and obedience, his righteousness, and let him grow me day by day to reveal his character. It's actually evidence of it. It's very practical. Let's go to the next slide. Now let's look at this uh, from Lessons on Faith. It's quite easy for many to believe that they're ungodly and even to acknowledge it. But for them to believe that God justifies them, in other words, makes them right with God, takes the burden off of their shoulders, that's too much. And the sole reason why they cannot believe that God justifies them is they are ungodly, so ungodly. If only they could find some good in themselves, and I put hope in self, or if only they could straighten up and do better, they might have some courage to hope that God would justify them. Do you see this convoluted language? He sums it up. Yes, they would justify themselves by works and then profess to believe in justification by faith. See how the devil gets us twisted? If I could just do something good for God, maybe he'll accept me. This is appeasement theology. This is paganism. This is paganism in the church. If I can just do something good, if I can do good works, then maybe God can justify me. If I can do good works, I don't need justification. I don't need to be made right with God. He just nails this. There is so much depth in these few words right here. They're powerful. But when a person sees himself so ungodly as to find that there is no possible ground of hope for justification, it is just there that faith comes in. In other words, trusting Jesus and his goodness to me. Indeed, it is only there that faith can possibly come in. For faith is dependent upon the word of God only. So as soon as I'm trying to depend on myself to improve myself, I'm into appeasement theology. It's only when I say, God, I'm ungodly, I can't do it. My only hope is in you covering me. Thank you that you have. Teach me how to receive it. Then I begin to grow. You know, Paul upset the Jews because he says in Romans 4, earlier in the chapter, God only justifies the ungodly who do not work. Now, you say that to a group of people with a system of works. This is the, he committed the unpardonable sin from their perspective. God justifies the ungodly who do not work? That's crazy in their theology and the way they worked. So they hated him and they tried to kill him. Click again. But thanks be to God, who, whoever has, whosoever has the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, whoever depends only on the Lord Jesus 
And that which Jesus has done, though he be of himself a debtor just like any other man, yet in Christ he has wherewith abundantly to pay all the indebtedness. Christ supplies the abundance of righteousness to pay all the demands that the law may ever make in the life of him who believes in Jesus. So Jesus has more than enough to pay all the demands of the law and make me right with God. I don't have to carry that burden. Many people, millions of people, are carrying the burden of trying to get right with God when it was already done. They're trying to get right with God instead of receiving the way he made them right with God through Jesus. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Click again. So now, some people still worry cheap grace. You know, we're, we're afraid of grace because grace might unleash the flesh. No, grace kills the flesh. And we saw earlier today quotes from A.T. Jones that Christ killed flesh at the root. So if you experience God's grace, it's going to kill flesh at the root. And you're not going to have more fleshy works. You're going to have more spiritual works. So what did Abraham need to do to receive this incredible righteousness? It's not cheap grace. Let's click. He had to trust God to be that good as what he said he is, to confess his sins, lies, wounds, and selling his wife out. He had to. We don't have all the details, but he had to. How do we know? Because he trusted God with Isaac. Okay? And he had to let God reveal and release and replace every lie. Go ahead. Okay, with Jesus' record. See, Abraham would need to confess his sins, his wounds, his lies, uh, if he really believed God was this forgiving, this gracious, and let him replace it. And how do we know? Uh, let's click again. Would Abraham trust God with his son Isaac? Everything to him, his whole future, would he trust God with Isaac if he hadn't trusted God with his sins, wounds, and lies first? No, he couldn't do it. So if parents, if you can't trust your children with God, let God deal with some of the sins, wounds, and lies in your life. And by the way, pleading with God, increasing your anxiety, doesn't help you. And then your kids see your anxiety when they're not walking with God, and they say, Mom and Dad, they serve a weak, needy, wimpy, pathetic God. And of course, that makes them, your anxiety, makes them want to come back to church, right? Oh, it doesn't. Okay? Let God heal your heart so you get more peace. You're trusting God with your children. You have more peace. You pray with more power and you have more of a testimony to your kids. It's a win-win, okay? Let's click again. Here's a quote from Desire of Ages. Jesus knew the life of his trusting disciples would be like his. A series of uninterrupted victories not seen to be such. Here, she understands uninterrupted victories. By the way, how many sins can you have in a series of uninterrupted victories? I'd want to say, here's what happened. The disciples had a series of uninterrupted victories where they're trusting God, and then they was interrupted and they fell off. And then they had another series of uninterrupted victories, and then they were interrupted and fell off, and then they were uninterrupted series, and then they fell off. Is there something wrong with that logic? If it's uninterrupted, how many sins can Peter have? None. Does she understand this message? Not here, this, this, this uninterrupted series, life series, not recognized here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. Is it possible that Romans 4 is inviting us to see the book of life? And what your record will look like in the book of life? Maybe you want to read Hebrews 11 too, as well, because there's no sin there. There's just acts of faith. And there's some pretty shady people in there like Samson. 
I, God's wiser than me. I wouldn't put Samson in my Hall of Fame and say, if I have a son, son, be just like Samson. And his closing prayer is, give me vengeance on my enemies. Now, God answered that, uh, which makes it interesting. You're going to preach a sermon next week, how to commit suicide to get vengeance on your enemy with God's help. But God saw something in his heart. But he had to have his eyes out and had to lose his human power. He trusted, given a gift of power. He trusts in his own self, in his flesh. When he loses everything, he turns back to God. And now God puts him in Hebrews 11. I wouldn't do that. But then I wouldn't, probably wouldn't say Abraham's the father of the faithful either. So there's a lot of things I wouldn't do that God does. But because this is, this is a righteousness by faith message. See, this isn't about Abraham's record of faith, hope, and trust. It's Jesus. And people with lots more degrees than me put Abraham on the altar. They're not reading 18 in context. They're not reading 19 in context. They're not reading 20 or 21 in context. They're not trying to be manipulative, but they're bringing their human reasoning to God's word. And they're trying to figure out where this was. But Paul allow, I praise God that Paul's using language that allows no exceptions. This is an uninterrupted record of Abraham's faith. So it pushes us to Jesus. And the text helps us. So again, let's hit chief grace. Let's answer questions about chief grace. We'll click. As I see the goodness of God rewriting my life record with the record of Jesus and his righteousness, I'm less responsible to choose to let God heal me, forgive me, set me free, receive his faith, his forgiveness, um, and his obedience. Okay. Or, as I see the goodness of God rewriting my record with the record of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, I'm more responsible to choose with my free will to let God heal me, forgive me, and set me free and receive his faith and all of his forgiveness. Which one is going to make a difference is going to be righteousness by faith. Okay, we'll click. The one on the left is um, self works. The one on the right is the Savior's work. So we can click those two. So I, I want to hit this hard because people get so scared of God being this gracious, this extravagant with his grace, that they start worrying that people are going to run out and sin. If you get this message and say, I can go drink and cheat on my wife now, you have missed the message of the cross. You have twisted it, and I'm going to quote my namesake, your condemnation is just. Now, can you take this message, can you take the message of the gospel and righteousness by faith and twist it? You have free will, but you're going to be accountable to God, okay? Because you're going to be responsible for rejecting God, not only forgiving you, not only healing you through Christ's suffering, but rewriting your record and giving you the record of Jesus Christ. And you and I will be responsible for rejecting this or accepting it. That's our part in the judgment. But again, I am in the judgment secondarily. The cross is at the center of the judgment. And if you're scared about the Ask God how you have put yourself in the center of the judgment. Ask God how you're looking at your right life record, your pattern of good deeds and bad deeds. Because righteousness by faith isn't, hey, I did a bunch of bad things, I did a bunch of good things. Do we agree that Abraham did some really good things and really bad things? Do the good things outweigh the bad things? Boy, that's going down the road of heresy and righteousness by works. I can't appease God because he gave me his son because he loved me not to condemn me. He wants me to live. So, let's keep going. Uh, we're going to skip this because of lack of time. Uh, we'll skip that slide. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a skit of Abraham and the judgment, and the angel's reading. Uh, he says, okay, you're going to go see God right now, and Abraham's saying, no, 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 I blew it here, I blew it here, I blew it here. And, and the angel keeps interrupting him and trying to say, I want to read you the record. So he reads him Romans 4. And he goes, wait a minute, who wrote that? 
It's not my record. Oh, it's written in blood. And he says, would you thank him for me? And the angel says, no. You can thank him yourself. He's waiting for you. You don't need an intermediary. And the angel says, I just love this job. Now, the first time they did a skit, that last line wasn't in there. Wouldn't it be something if the judgment message was the most powerful message we had that we can say, I just love sharing about the judgment. I want you to know what your record's going to be like when you show up in the judgment. Hebrews 10, 14 says, notice this, this balance, for by one sacrifice 2,000 years ago, he has, past tense, perfected those who are being made holy or sanctified. You know what that means? I'm letting God sanctify me daily. I, this is not cheap grace, my friends. You're, you, you can't improve on his perfection. So before we go into part two, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to close with prayer. Father, the devil wants us to believe this is too good to be true. It's good for others, but not for us. Thank you that you have perfected us forever as we are letting you sanctify us, grow us daily as we continue the ongoing conversation with you of receiving Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' healing, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' faith, hope, and trust in you, and Jesus' obedience. So we're receiving the life of Jesus into our hearts and minds, and you're revealing your character of love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Greetings, friends. Pastor Rob Bernardo here from Michigan's historic Battle Creek Tabernacle. What you've been watching is just one of the many presentations from the 2020-1888 National Conference called It's Midnight. And I would say that's a pretty appropriate title for the times in which we live, wouldn't you? You know, I think we're all looking for that fourth angel of Revelation to come down upon this dark world with his light and glory. And I believe that is going to happen soon. Think about it. Jesus' finest hour was also the hour of the power of darkness. And so it will be with his church in the last days. The greatest days for both his church and his gospel are yet to come. So keep studying, keep sharing. You'll see the web address below. There are many other presentations to watch. And so may God bless you. And may you be found faithful when he comes.